Well, it's good to see you all. So glad, glad to be here. I've been doing this for almost 20 years, I think. Is that long? I've been speaking at Hume for, for at least 20, if not more. started at Joshua, and I'm just very thankful that I get to do this, see so many familiar faces, see old friends, and make new ones. Just a delight to be with you all. I just I want to make sure you know that I'm just not a talking head, that I come from my church family. Is this working, Jason? We good? There we go. That's a picture of people from my church. I always like to start with a picture of a bunch of my church folks because I want you to know that that's my church family that I'm representing as I'm here. I come here under their authority. I, I must tell you, uh, speakers worry me. Uh, people who speak a lot, they worry me because they often get disconnected from their church family and they speak as if they're in pastoral, pastoral ministry, but they actually don't know one little kid in their church. And I, I think that's, that's a troubling situation. And so I just want you to know it's my church family. I come under their authority. Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada is where I'm one of the members as well as one of the pastors. And the, they know I'm here. They're praying for me. They prayed for me this morning as they knew I was starting uh, preaching here this morning. So, so I come representing Grace. This is a photograph of the family I live with every day, though. My daughter, my wife, Donna, of 33 years. We met in high school, and she is the most incredible conduit of God's grace in my life. I'm so deeply thankful for her. And then there's my daughter Caroline over here, she's working at Wagon Train as the trading post lady. When she was eight, she went to Wagon Train and she came home and said, I want to be the trading post lady someday. <laughs> and now she's 22 and she's the trading post lady as she was last summer as well. And she runs a tight ship from what I'm told, maybe a bit too tight. Maybe she ease up a little bit. And, um, but she's, she's an amazing uh, young lady, and then my daughter Paige over on your right is 19 and works in healthcare, and my son Sam is 16, and he's home playing basketball. It's like a full-time job when you play high school basketball these days. It used to be just a sport. It used to be a extracurricular activity. It doesn't seem so extra anymore. It seems like a full-time job, but in, unfortunately, he's really good. And so it means he's, he's devoted to all the time. He's really good, but I don't think he's going to be great because he's too emotionally healthy to be a really good athlete, I think. <laughs> I, I was a really good athlete. It's partly because I was not emotionally healthy and, and still am not. But he, he seems quite settled in who he is and has not a lot to prove, which means he's never going to be really good in my opinion. But, but he's a great kid and I love him. I just wish he had a little more anger to work off when he was playing. But... <laughs> You're seeing my issues come out now. And then um, my son Isaac is working in Hume SoCal full-time this summer. Believe it or not, Bob Mole has taken him under his wing. And he is the life of the party everywhere he goes. He's never met a stranger. When I come to places like Hume, I was at Forest Home last week, and I come to these places, and people say, oh, good to see you. Is Donna here? And I say, no, oh, is Isaac here? No. And they say, well, it's good to see you too. And then they, they walk away. But I'm used to it, and people are right to be more excited about my wife and kids than, than me. But I, I want to spend some time this week thinking about habits of grace. But I first want to think about what it means to be human. 
I'm an impatient person, and I've realized that there's a flip side to every negative quality, I think, in people that's, that's positive. And I think there's a flip side to every positive quality that's negative. And I, I've, I've realized that throughout my life. And one of my greatest sins, I don't want to soft sell it, it's a sin. You could say, one of the fruit of the Spirit I lack most, but we'll just say sin, two ways to say that, is impatience. I'm an impatient man. But an upside of that is I don't like to waste time. Redeem the time for the days are evil is not a hard command for me to take seriously. And I'm impatient with shallowness. So there are all sorts of sinful downsides of my impatience, just ask my wife and kids. But the upsides is I don't want to spend time on anything if I don't think it's going to be worth it. And that means I'm deeply concerned about whether or not my time I'm spending is adding up to what it should be adding up to. And the only way you can know that is you, if you have an answer to that should question. What should your life be about? What is the meaning of your life? What's the purpose of your life? And then that's not even enough. It's not enough to know what you're intended to be. You need to know how you get there. I mean, imagine if I said to you, this is a horrible laptop. Because last night I took it out in my garage and I tried to drive a nail with it. And the nail kept getting bent, and it just never worked. I tried for 45 minutes to drive a nail into a board, and it just never worked. This laptop is terrible. I'm sending it back to Apple. And then what if I said to you, and you know what? This hammer is a horrible hammer. Because I tried to type a paper on it, and it just didn't work. It, it, I didn't get one sentence out, not even a word. It, it just wouldn't type a paper for me. I'm getting rid of this hammer. What would you say to me if I said that? Exactly. You're either crazy or stupid, right? Because do you not know that laptops are not to, to drive nails and hammers are not to write papers? I mean, that, that would be idiocy. But so many of us go through life and we don't think about the purpose of our lives very much. We don't think about what we are and then therefore what we should be and what our lives should look like. And then we have to ask the question, once we know that goal, how do I get there? How do I get to the purpose of my life? I mean, just think about it. it if, say you just believe in Darwinian evolution. That means you believe a human being is the result of this billions of years process of chaotic destruction and survival of the fittest and gradually climbing further and further up the food chain. And so being successful with that mentality is going to mean something drastically different than if you view human beings the way the Bible teaches us to, which is that we're unique, each of us, but we're equally, we're the same in that we're all made in God's image and glorious in that sense and fundamentally made to glorify God in a relationship with Him.
and you glorify him by being faithful to him and his commands and you glorify him by showing your satisfaction in him by doing what he says on a daily basis knowing that that's what leads to him and what leads to life. And you live then, therefore, to translate that horizontal relation, that vertical relationship into a horizontal loving relationship with people. If you love God, you must love your brother, the Bible says. You see, that's a completely different goal and means to that goal than if you just think we're the result of a blob of protoplasm that crawled out of the ocean a billion and a half years ago and somehow ended up being what we are, which is just mind-blowing to me there are some things in the bible that take a lot of faith for me to believe like that uh, women are as sinful as men i just think i have more evidence that men are more sinful than women i just do maybe it's because i'm a man and i've spent a lot of time on guys dorm floors or something but but the Bible says men and women are equally fallen so even though statistically i could give you a lot of evidence that men are worse than women uh, statistically, the Bible says, no, those statistics don't determine that. Eric, submit to the fact that men and women are equally fallen. There are some things in the Bible that are hard for me to believe, but I accept. Some things aren't hard for me to believe, like I'm a sinner. That's not hard at all. Or that you are. That's not hard for me to believe either. But, but what isn't hard for me to accept is that God designed this world. I actually find it mind-blowing. Anybody can look at creation, anywhere in creation, and not see a design to it, a beautiful design to it. And so if you want to be everything that God created you to be, you need to know that he made you in his image for relationship with him. But that relationship has been terribly destroyed in our rebellion against him, this sinful, rebellious heart that we all equally share. And that has wrecked this relationship, not just with us and God. See, when your relationship with God gets knocked out of kilter, then everything else does as well. And all creation groans, we're told. It's out of kilter. It's out of sorts. It's disintegrated. And God sends his son, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. He sends his son to reintegrate the world. Because when we get disintegrated in our relationship with God, everything gets disintegrated. We, we get a disintegrated relationship between us and other human beings. And we go to war all the time. We get a disintegrated relationship with the creation itself. We're at war with creation. There's disease. And as one poet said, that... Creation is nothing but red in tooth and claw. There's destruction and an instinct to destroy between us and creation. We're at war with it, and we're at war within ourselves. There's a battle raging. Paul puts it this way. I do the very thing I hate. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I don't do. Can anybody relate to that? I certainly can. And so... So there's this disintegration, but God reintegrates us in our relationship with him in his son through the work of redemption in his son. That's the Christian story at its core that reintegrates everything. So what does this reintegration look like? When and at what point do we know we're heading on the right path? 
Well, that's what I want to think about. How we get rightly reintegrated with God and then how we continue the process of what the Bible says, work out your faith with fear and trembling. To walk in newness of life. To be conformed to the image of Christ. What does that look like over time? How do we do that? It's amazing to me how much mystery there seems to be for people in how you grow as a Christian. And I don't want to deny there's a mysterious element to this. But it's never been complicated. Sometimes we think Christian growth and understanding it is awaiting the next Dallas Willard book to come out to tell us what that means. Dallas Willard was a great author. He's with Jesus now. So the book's not coming out. So if we don't know, we're in trouble. But it's been there all along. It's not a mystery how you grow. There's something mysterious about it because it's got a spiritual and miraculous component. But our role in our growth isn't a mystery. It's not easy. It's never been easy in a fallen world. But it's never been complicated. I think one of the ways uh, Satan sends us off course is to overcomplicate everything. And theologians, of which I am in that profession, uh, it seems like our job often, when you look at it, is to make simple things complicated. But I hope that's not the case this week. I hope we can make, I think, simple things even more clear and more simple. And so that's what we're after. And, and what, what I want to talk about this week is, is what I call Habits of Grace. This is a book title by David, David Mathis. Full disclosure, I haven't read it. But I love the title. And I know David Mathis, so I'm sure it's a good book, and I wouldn't have a hard time recommending it, especially because my wife has read it. Do you know I've had 20-minute conversations. People say, have you read this book? And I say, yes, I have. And then I have a 20-minute conversation with them, and at some point I say, you know, I actually don't think I read it. My wife read it, and so I think I read it because we talked about it the whole time she was reading it. And so this is one of those books. I haven't read it, but Donna has. So, so his book, Habits of Grace, it's a great title, and it gets at what we do to grow. So this is how I would define Habits of Grace. Spiritual disciplines, practice with our bodies, mostly in normal life, rooted in the local church. This, this is a definition I came up with, and, and every part of it I find important. So they're spiritual disciplines. They're ways we grow spiritually. And even as, as Paul says, we may be wasting away physically, we can be growing spiritually and be stronger than we ever were spiritually, even when we're at our weakest physically. Yes? So, so spiritual disciplines are things that strengthen us in the inner man. Things that strengthen us from the inside out. When you become a Christian, when you trust Jesus in saving faith, God implants the Spirit of God in a transforming, permanent, indwelling way in your heart. And there begins a process then where you're being transformed into the likeness of God himself. You grow in godliness. Isn't that an awesome thing to say that godliness is something we are capable of? We are able to grow in godliness more and more like God as we grow. Spiritual disciplines then help us to grow from the inside out. 
and they're practiced. There's something we do. That's an important word. And in our time together this week, I want to redeem words that have fallen on really tough times. I'm writing a book, 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. Some of you have heard me say that before. My dad said to me recently, Eric, if you don't get that book finished, you should stop saying you're writing that book. (laughs) And he's right. I've been working on it. I got a family. But... um, but one of, the, one of the chapters is I think we should stop saying Christianity's not a religion. It's a relationship. Now, every one of these sayings that I think we should stop saying has truth in them. And maybe at some point in the history of the church could have been helpful. But I watch these sayings get used and then we go overboard and start to understand them simplistically. Because you know what? Christianity's a religion. It is. It's a religion that maintains and deepens a relationship. Yes? We swing on this pendulum. I have a friend who has a literal pendulum on his desk. And every time he's thinking through an issue, he hits the pendulum to try to figure out where he may be in these extremes we swing to all the time. Maybe my grandparents' generation didn't think enough about the state of their hearts and whether there was inward transformation going on because their lives were a lot about getting food on the table. They were a World War II, depression-raised generation. You know, the ones that started Hume. They worked. They put food on the table. And you didn't wait around for your father to say he loved you. He put food on the table, didn't he? Right? And now that's considered an abusive father. But back then, it was just a faithful dad. But when, when you think that way... There could be a reaction against it. And now I think we've swung on this pendulum and we've over-spiritualized spirituality. And, And we've talked about our spiritual condition before God so much as as something that God does for us rightly by grace that we sort of easily leave off religious practice. That word practice is very important and intentional. Do you know what it says? When Jesus goes home to Nazareth, it says he goes home and it was the Sabbath and as was his custom, he was in the synagogue. I could give you dozens and dozens of verses from Jesus' life that show you he had practices, habits, disciplines, things he did regularly. And I know some of you right now are sitting there saying, well, he's God, of course he did. No, please don't pull the deity card every time Jesus is disciplined or else he won't be an example to us or a substitute. So Jesus is disciplined because he's disciplined. I don't think he always wanted to go to the synagogue, especially when he knew he was going to be confronted there and contradicted and attacked. And one time after he spoke in the synagogue, people wanted to rip him limb from limb. You think he woke up and say, yippee, I go to the synagogue today. No, he disciplined himself to go there. He, he disciplines himself. He says, not my will, but thy will be done in his human nature. And so we've got to recapture the positive sense of words like discipline and words like religion and words like practice. I think this is especially a problem among the younger generation. They'll use phrases like, we're human beings, not human doings. Ever hear that? 
where it's not about what we do, it's who we are. And there's most certainly truth to those things. But do you think what we do may in some way reflect who we are? Do you think what we do may in some way have a transforming effect for good or bad in who we become? Is it that simplistic and either or? It's not who we, what we do, it's who we are. Is it that simplistic and dichotomistic that, that it, it's, it's about being a human being, not a human doing? I want us to restore a sense of the right, good, glorious truth that what we do can actually lead us toward life. What we do with our bodies, what we practice, what we regularly... You know what it says about Simeon in Luke chapter 2? It says he was righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Righteous and devout. You know, I've had several mentors from, from that World War II greatest generation. I'm so deeply thankful for that. And, and they had no problem saying to me, Eric, did you read your Bible today? They had no problem saying, Eric, have you had a good time of prayer today? Eric, are you memorizing scripture? Good, let me hear some. They had no problem doing that. I traveled with a man named Robert Coleman from that generation, and, and he, I got to be one of Coleman's boys. We used to hang out with him a lot. And he would have no problem when we would be on a trip somewhere. I remember one time, one of the first trips I went on with Robert Coleman was to, was to, was to Moscow to do a, a school for, for Russian pastors. One of these pastors, he traveled through 10 time zones to get to Moscow from Vladivostok. That's how much he wanted this training. But we were sitting in the lobby the first night, and Coleman takes out his Bible, and he throws it on my lap, and he says, Eric, bring us a word. Sitting in the lobby of a hotel. And what he meant was, give us some truth from what you have recently learned from God's word. He's, he's a Wesleyan evangelist. And he, he, you know, Wesley said to his lay preachers, you always be prepared to do three things. Pray, preach, and die. Those are good things to be ready to do. So anytime anybody asks you to do any three of those, be ready, Right? And so Coleman thought we should all be that way. But, you know, I asked my students a question like that. Did you read your Bible today? They ha I can tell. Even if they don't say it, they have this aversion to those kinds of questions. And sometimes they even say, you know what? Christian life's not about a list of things to check boxes. You know, this is, it's not just about doing all these things. About, it's about relationship with God. It's about intimacy with God. It's not about, did I do this? Did I not do that? That's legalistic. You know, spiritual growth is, is way more than checking boxes. It's, it's pretty reductionistic, isn't it, Thomas? And I'll say to him, imagine if Donna came to me, my wife, and said, you know what? It's been three months since you and I have just gone and spent some time together and had a date. Imagine if I said to her, oh, honey, our relationship is not about a list of things to do like going on dates. It's not about checking boxes. Did we have some good conversations this week sometime? Or have we prayed together? Come on, that, that's so simplistic and legalistic. I mean, how do you think that would go over with Donna? She wouldn't buy it at all, would she? 
she would know that that's missing the fact that any good relationship has to be maintained by faithful, regular practice. I think we miss this on a human level too. And with, with what I'm told, a third of the church not coming back to church now that COVID protocols have been lifted. It just shows me that people realize that being meaningfully involved in a local church gathering is sort of an optional spiritual discipline if you think it's working for you. Real designer approach to the Christian life. And so I would love for us to not be in these extremes of, of over-spiritualizing spirituality or reducing it to something simplistic that isn't about maintaining a relationship. Look, if, if I just think having a relationship with Donna is doing these five things, I'm missing on the other side of the spectrum, right? And so any good relationship with anyone or anything for that matter, you need to have a good relationship with your car, right? So you change the oil regularly, Yes? And you have the tires changed and rotated and, and you, you maintain the car. My, my um, daughter inherited a car from her grandfather when he died. And he was one of those guys. He was 89 when he died just a few years ago. He was one of those guys. There was nothing he had done to his car or did to his car that he didn't record somewhere. I mean, nothing. He, he, he kept the mileage. Every time he filled it up, he kept the mileage. And it, he was that kind of guy. And now my daughter's driving the car, and I, I just can't imagine what he would think of how careless she is with it. I, I drove it the other day, and I saw the, the oil hadn't been changed in a long time. And so I thought, oh, Grandpa Craig would be so upset by this. So I drove right to Jiffy Lube and got that oil changed in, in the honor of Craig Charlton. So... So yeah, we maintain our relationship with our car. And so habits of grace are spiritual disciplines practiced with our bodies. Why do I say that? Again, because I think we over-spiritualize spirituality. I want us to realize that bodies are a gift and we're embodied souls. And, and what we do with our bodies has an effect on our souls for good or bad. Sexual immorality, for instance, clearly in the Bible, devastates your soul as well as any kind of immorality. And giving yourself to what's good fortifies your soul. It brings health to your soul and light and life to your soul and to your body as well. It's amazing how it's all integrated. That A, a sorrowful heart has a physical effect. Stress can cause you to lose hair. Isn't that amazing how interconnected our bodies and souls are and in our minds and our psyches? We're these incredibly, wonderfully holistic creatures. And so what we do with our bodies really matters because bodies really matter. Great book, Nancy Piercy. Love Thy Body. Highly recommend it. Love Thy Body. Nancy's convinced... It's fascinating that we're in a day where Christians are considered these puritanical, pleasure-hating people. That's how people want to caricature us. Oh, you're the ones who don't like to have, to have any fun. Oh, yeah, come to Hume Lake and see, see us have fun here, yeah. Or come to my home and see us have a water fight during washing dishes after dinner. Yeah, we have lots of fun. You know, it's amazing to me anybody would think Christians don't have interesting and exciting lives. It, it's, it's one of the most absurd 
stereotypes of Christians. Sit around with 10 Christians and ask them where they've been in the world. I guarantee it'll be more places than a bunch of non-Christians sitting around. Why? Because we have the Great Commission sending us all over the world. Yeah? Mark, where'd you just get back from? Ukraine. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> See what I mean? It's amazing. Anybody would think we have these joyless, unfun lives. We don't, but, but it's interesting that we Christians, you know what? We need to be the champions of embodiment and sensuality. Isn't it horrible that the word sensual or sensuality, we hear that word and we think a negative thing. Sen sensual just means of the senses. God gave us senses. He gave us delightful things to sense. We should, Christians, be the champions of sensuality. Let's not give it over to the world. Let's not make it a, just a negative thing. The senses are a gift from God, and the things our senses partake in is a gift from God. And so we need to be the champions of embodied existence in all that a body means and is capable of. God's work in us is not complete until the resurrection of the body. You don't just die and go to heaven. This is another thing that I don't hear enough of these days, is the, the resurrection. And, and I think most Christians think that when you die, you get your resurrected body. You know that's not the case, right? You die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but, but everybody who's died, except for Jesus, is waiting for his or her resurrected body. That's why when a Christian says, oh, my grandmother was in a wheelchair for the last 10 years of her life, and I just, she died yesterday, and I know today she's dancing on her new legs. I never say it, but I do think, not quite yet. <laughs> it's coming, and she's not impatient, but not quite yet, because until the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise, we will rise together to meet all the believers. King David will be like, here we go, and, and it'll be amazing. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be all together getting a resurrected body, joining Jesus as the prototype of our resurrected eternal state. So embodiment matters. And so, what we, and so what's my point? We do this with our bodies, which means getting on your knees. Is it necessary for meaningful prayer? God hears you no matter what your posture is. But does getting on your knees to pray or to worship have an effect on your heart, on your soul, on your emotions? It certainly does for me. Man, I can't tell. Sometimes I'm feeling quite arrogant. And then I get on my face. And it's really hard to feel arrogant with your face on the floor. Really hard. Especially before God. So C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters, this senior demon tells a younger demon how to keep a young man far from God. And he says, the first thing you need to do is keep him from praying. Don't let him pray. And he says, the best thing to do to keep him from praying is to get embarrassed about his childhood prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. And be embarrassed by how rote that was. And how lacking in meaning and spirituality that was. And then get them go to the extreme in the other direction. And do what Coleridge said, one of their poets, that he did not pray with moving lip or bended knee, but merely composed his spirit 
to love. Inclined his heart toward prayer. He didn't have to talk or bend his knee or do anything. And, and the demon says, that's exactly the sort of prayer we want. Because he says they're animals. And these animals always forget what you must never forget. That whatever their bodies do affects their soul. What you do with your body really matters. I think this is one of the missing aspects of conversations about abortion. Conversations about transgenderism. Conversations about spiritual growth. Conversations about homosexuality. Are our bodies irrelevant in the way they're designed? Or is there something sacred in the design and then sacred in the way we express our design as embodied souls that's honoring to God and good for us and a blessing to others? So spiritual disciplines are things we practice with our bodies, mostly in normal life. Again, I want to talk about this. I love missionary biographies. I've read lots of them. I encourage people to read them all the time. But there's a danger in reading missionary biographies. Because you get the idea that the Christian life is primarily these dramatic experiences, experiences of missionaries, you know, sometimes martyred praying through the night as the persecutors are on the way. These intense experiences of miracles and deliverances and revivals and encouragements. But, but please realize the Christian life is mostly changing diapers, sitting in traffic, working out a conflict with your husband, trying to figure out how in the world to raise a teenager. Dealing with physical challenges, again. Fighting a sin you fought your whole life. Stuff no one's going to write, write a biography about. And you know, I, I come to places like Hume. And I, I actually don't hear this much here, but man, I hear it other places I go, especially in youth ministry. Here's what people always say, and often say. You know, just be faithful working with those kids. Because you don't know if the next Billy Graham is sitting out. Okay, but it's actually highly unlikely. Is that okay? How about you don't know if somebody's sitting out there who without your influence would drift from the Lord almost unnoticeably for decades and eventually become, oh yeah, Christian, but a lukewarm one who's a passive husband and an emotionally detached father and has very little to show for his life at the end of it. That young man may be sitting in your youth group and you may be able to have a huge impact. No one's ever going to write his biography. But it'll be glorious when he enters the gates of heaven and we see the results of that simple faithfulness in your life and the faithfulness that came from his. You know, they've done massive research on hero ball. and ba Any basketball fans in here? Wow, not many. No worries. Yeah, who do you like, Beverly? You follow a team? Oh, high school basketball. That's the best. You actually know the people. Yes. I stopped watching pro sports a long time ago because I woke up angry after my team lost one day, and I thought, why am I angry? And I said, oh, they lost on that bad call. And I thought, 
I do not have the emotional energy to spare on people I don't even know, right? I don't know these people, right? So now I sit very quietly at high school basketball games. I do. I don't say a word. So, um, yeah, you know, they've done a massive research on what's called hero ball, which is how almost every team plays. You feed it to the one or two very best players on the team, and you orient everything around them. You don't win that way. You don't win that way. Michael Jordan wasn't the best player in the NBA for 10 years. And it wasn't, it wasn't until he realized that until he got everybody else involved, he was never going to win a championship. Hero ball doesn't work. It doesn't work in basketball, and it doesn't work in the church. If we think about Christians who are really getting it done as celebrities, the people you write biographies about, even the people in those missionary biographies will tell you most of their life on the mission field was really mundane looking. Jesus is 30 years old and he goes home to Nazareth and speaks as Messiah. And we're told the people were offended at him. Why? Because his life looked so normal. This is the carpenter's kid. We knew his, brother, we knew his siblings. He played in my backyard. I wiped his nose when he was five. He's never been anything impressive. He didn't even win most likely to succeed at Nazareth High. Nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. He didn't get any superlatives, you know. He's just the Messiah. He's the perfect human being. That's all. But normal. So worked out in normal life. Rooted in the local church. I don't want to miss that. We'll talk about that our last time together this week. The importance of fellowship within ideally the local church context. It's the only place these habits of grace actually kick into gear the way God intends for them to. It doesn't mean they don't and can happen in wonderful ways that aren't in that context specifically, but our lives need to be rooted and all these disciplines need to be rooted in the local church. And their habits, things we do regularly that sometimes feel like it's sheer discipline. You know, the same root word in disciple is discipline. But their habits of grace. This is where we don't go to the other extreme and fall into legalism. As I mentioned this morning, if you were there, right in the New Testament, we've got this problem we've had throughout the history of the church between what we would call legalism, thinking that we earn God's salvation, and what we would call cheap grace, that we really don't have to do anything if we're saved. And this tension has always existed in the history of the church, and I think they're both equally grounded in human arrogance. We tend to feel sorry for someone who's laboring under legalism, but I think they're both equally just arrogance, thinking it's about us instead of God. And, and so they're habits of grace. These things are not things we earn or deserve or accomplish. These are means of grace that we devote ourselves to, that we yield ourselves to, open ourselves up to, and God works in us from the inside out, transforming us to be more like Jesus. So you're going to get after it, these things, and then five years later you're going to say, would you look at that? I am more patient than I was five years ago. I am, just ask my wife. That's actually true. Ask my wife, she'll tell you. She'll say, and he has a ways to go. But, um, but they're habits of grace that you, you grow and it's God who does it. And it leads to growth in godliness. We actually become more like God. And it's a gift. It's something we open ourselves up to by attending to these ways we grow. And God is a gift 
through the kind ministry of the Holy Spirit, changes us. The Holy Spirit is the one who does it. I spent a, a long time in my Christian life, well into my 20s, pretty clueless about how absolutely essential the Holy Spirit is to my life as a Christian. My life becoming a Christian, my life growing as a Christian, my life ministering as a Christian, I, I am just stunned at how little I understood his role. But through time and through experiences and studying the Bible and people I knew who were truly filled with the Spirit, I started to understand that he's absolutely essential. And biblically, this is true. You know how Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And then he leaves us. No, he says that. You could say, well, I guess he was lying. No, he tells us in John 16, it's to your advantage that I go. Because if I don't, the comforter won't come. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And what the comforter does is mediate the presence of Christ and exalt Christ through our transformed lives. So our habits of grace need to be seen by us as grace, as gift, but things that the Spirit is doing in us, glorious things that otherwise never would be possible, He does it. The book of Acts is the worst titled book in the Bible. Do you know the titles weren't inspired? They were added much later. So we can critique them. Don't think I'm a heretic. We can critique them. Actually, some of the titles are terrible, and I would change them if I could. It's too late. We can't change any of them. There's no doubt about it. But the Acts of the Apostles is a terrible name for that book because Peter and Paul are not the stars of Acts. Who's the star of Acts? Holy Spirit. It should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. You could tag through the Apostles, but he's the star. Nothing happens. I mean, imagine Jesus saying, go make disciples of all nations baptizing them and teaching in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And then he says, but don't budge in that until the Spirit comes in power. In other words, it'll be useless. It'll be wood, hay, and stubble. It'll be futility if you go out of the Spirit's empowering that came on the day of Pentecost that we have now as New Covenant believers to move into this world as transformed people as the Spirit works in us and then through us. And so we need to seek, seek to be spirit-filled, spirit-indwelt, spirit-dependent, spirit-seeking people. First thing I ask him to do for me is to be able to tell the difference. Because you know what? I can operate in the flesh. And, and sometimes I can't even tell the difference. But I've learned through the years as I've asked him to help me know the difference, the difference between operating in the spirit and operating in the flesh. I will leave class at Biola. I'll leave here tonight. And I will, at some point, when I get a little alone walking back, I'll say, Lord, were you pleased with that? And do you know what the bottom line and whether he's pleased with it or not? It'll be whether I was full of the Spirit or full of myself. I ask him that question, Lord, were you pleased with that? Was I full of myself or full of the Spirit just now? And look, it'll always be a little bit full of myself. A friend of mine said one time, I have to repent of the best thing I've ever done. In other words, there's always some bad motive. There's always some sin in everything I do. So I can't wait until it's totally pure to get up here and teach or do anything or try to raise my children and nurture admonition of the Lord. But, but, but we, we go into it saying, Lord, I want it to be you. I don't want it to be me. Even if, even if people like it, 
even if you use it in spite of my fleshliness, I don't want you to use it in spite of me. I want you to use it because I'm dependent on the Spirit's work. And so these are things through the kind ministry of the Spirit. I love the Holy Spirit. I love Him. I adore Him. I worship Him. He, He is an incredible gift to us that God promised would come, and He came, and He's the one who changes everything from the very beginning of our Christian lives until the last day we're on this earth. Okay, I want to pause there. I've said a lot. You're wonderful listeners after dinner, no less. It's amazing. After a long day, probably in the sun or driving or whatever you did, I'm so thankful for attentive people. I really am. I'm always shocked people actually listen. Even high school. I teach high schoolers all next week. I said no for years until Hume was in a bind because somebody couldn't make it. And Johnny and uh, Rich Baker said, please, Eric, I know you don't do high school, but please, we're in a bind. And I said, all right, just this once. And I, I preached to them, and they listened. So I've been saying yes for 10 years to them. So because they listen, it's wonderful. It still feels like hurting cats sometimes, but, <laughs> but they listen. It's beautiful. And God changes them. God saves them. Beautiful. All right. Thoughts, comments, questions, pushback, clarification. Let's talk. Let's converse. Pat. Yes. Yes. Right. So, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The thief on the cross, Jesus says, you'll be with me this very day in paradise. But the the resurrection hasn't happened yet. It's amazing. I would say the majority of Christians I meet don't realize that. They also don't realize that believers appear before the judgment seat of Christ, but in a very different way than unbelievers. Us for our works, them for themselves. But our works matter. And this, this relates to what I started off talking about. What we do matters. It really matters. And, and actually the scene at the, at the judgment seat is beautiful when we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And Pat, you're, I can tell. I, I don't know you well. I just had a delightful conversation tonight. Pat's going to have lots of jewels in her crown. And wonderfully, I won't be competitive. I'll be like, why she got so many more? It'll, it'll be it, no competition because we're on the same team. Her jewels add up to what I was after in the first place, right? It, the glory of God. So it all adds up to the same thing. But we hear, well done. We get jewels in our crown. And they're, they're for things done in the faith, in the spirit for the glory of God. They're not wood hand stubble that burn up, right? They last. They have eternal impact. They were treasures stored up in heaven. And sometimes it can be hard to tell the difference. I heard, I heard this fictional story one time that's not exactly technically accurate, but it's quite interesting. I heard the story of this, this woman who taught third grade Sunday school for 50 years in her church. And she died. She went to heaven And then her pastor died and went to heaven and went to visit her. And she had this massive mansion, massive mansion. It's the biggest one he could see. And he said, wow, look at this. A fifth grade Sunday school has this huge mansion. And she said, yeah, I know. I can't believe it. I had no idea he thought this way about my ministry. And then 
The butler comes through the door, waiting on this woman, and it's a mega church pastor. And the pastor says, What's he doing here? He said, Yeah, I don't know why. The Lord made him my butler. You know, it's just, it's just amazing how I, that, that's obviously a, a silly story, but there's some truth in it in that we tend to think. Really impressive things is what God cares about. I think so much of our heavenly realization is going to be, really? That guy had that impact? And that famous guy just had a little bit? Really? God's economy is so different than ours. So different. And I wonder if there's anywhere more than the American church where we've gotten this twisted. No, you these past, you know, do you know the average size of the church, of churches in America? What's that? Yeah, yeah, almost not even. Not even 150. You know, and these pastors of 150 church, which is the average, go to these conferences and all they hear is from these celebrity pastors and they, they walk out feeling like losers. And, and so we we just have a twistedness to what's really important, especially in the American church. And so, um, how did I get on? Oh, abs from the body. Right, so rewards is another thing that, that we don't quite know what to do with when we realize it's all grace. But I thought it was all grace. But see, there's another example of saying, well, it's grace, so, so what we do doesn't matter. No. No, it, it's the, 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 the New Testament is really clear about not falling to either end of that. And please realize we work out our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. There's a huge difference. We don't earn anything, prove anything, demonstrate anything, make ourselves worthy of anything ever. But we work it out. We work it out on a daily basis, a daily basis. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a term of resolution, determination, and discipline. I think, I think we don't appreciate the humanity of Christ sufficiently, which means he really needed discipline in his life. He learned obedience from the things he suffered. He learned it. He grew in wisdom, stature, faith with God and man. Not because he had a divine nature, but because he, he worked at it. He memorized scripture. Everything didn't come easily to him. His, his, his human nature required a process of learning obedience. Being tempted in all ways as we are, yet was without sin. Overcame it in our place and as our example. Great question, Pat. What else? Other comments or questions? Let's go in the blue, in the back. You had it up first, eager. Tell me your name. Jeff. Jeff. At what? <laughs>
Well, first let me say, I love them. And I, I do, I mean, as a, as a prof who's known as a tough prof, like, it's hard to get an A in my class, and students get angry. Like, the first, first three weeks of class, everybody loves me, and then they get their grades back, and they don't anymore, and, it, and it's so really different. And so, um, I, I want to be somebody in their life who helps them go deeper in every way, intellectually, in their discipline, in their character, in their understanding, in their, their lives, their ministry, their relationship. I, I just have this pastoral, professorial concern for them, and I love them. And I mostly don't blame them for their glaring problems. Because many of them are a product of a culture where they just don't know any better. And it's, and it's not even just real young people. It, it's, it's a lot of people who've been raised in a culture where the things you were just mentioning, Jeff, you, you could pretty much take them for granted. Maybe for most of human history, you could take the sorts of things you were just mentioning for granted. And now everything's up for grabs. And... So, so on the positives, they're incredibly compassionate. There's a kindness to young people today that I absolutely love and am rebuked by at times. There's a concern for people. Did you know, not even among Christians, but among even secular young people, the pro-abortion beliefs are declining. Did you know that? Societally, you wouldn't know that. But there's a compassion that even looks at an ultrasound that a 17-year-old looks at and says, I, I could never kill that. So, so that compassion is having some real upside to it. And so there's a beautiful compassion, there's a kindness, there's a concern for those on the margins, who, those who are hurting, that is just beautiful. You know, we have four adopted kids, if it wasn't obvious. And, um, and every time I tell somebody I adopted or show a fan, a flood of young people come up to me and say, I'm adopting someday. I'm doing foster care someday. This beautiful heart that, that I see. But what I, what I see is the problem is what I call the crisis of truthless compassion. At the heart of that compassion is not an understanding of truth. And so I would put quote, quote marks on either sides of compassion. It's not compassion if it's not grounded in truth. Because truth that actually calls for transformation seems arrogant to them. It seems harsh to them. About 75% of pop songs I hear basically say, you're awesome just the way you are. Don't let anybody dare tell you you need to change at all. Starting with Billy Joel, right? Don't go changing. Um, all the way to Katy Perry, Firework, and, and Lady Gaga, Born That Way. I mean, it's amazing how almost every song they hear is saying, you're awesome. And if anybody thinks you need to be any different than what you're feeling today, they're evil. So even what we're talking about is, is, is see, it's ridiculous. Why, why do we need this? Because I'm awesome. See, in this culture, if you say God loves you, they're tempted to say, I know. Now, they may not actually feel and experience that, and they'll, they'll think, yeah, I'm pretty lovable. That's what all my Instagram followers tell me. And they say I'm stinking cute, too. And so, so it's truthless compassion, which means there's an understanding of a meaningful life that's about doing for others, going on mission trips to rescue kids out of sex trafficking, 
But what they don't realize is that the Christian life is mostly patient endurance, not Instagrammable pictures from a mission trip you did for two weeks. And so, do they have patient endurance ends up being my big question. Okay, you want a life that matters. You, you really care to have a life that matters. Well, do you realize that a life that matters gets that way by going to bed a half an hour earlier than you would have otherwise if you didn't plan to get up a half hour earlier than you would have otherwise to read your Bible, pray, and sing a hymn? So you want to go rescue kids out of sex trafficking. How about work in the nursery to help people in our church raise their kids or work with some of the kids in our church who are in the foster system and, and, and get certified to be able to look after foster kids so that family can go on a date for once. <laughs> See, that's not as dramatic. That's not as, as quick and easy. It, it's just long-haul stuff. And so that patient endurance is probably my biggest concern. And, and one of the biggest problems with that is the constant distractions. It's really hard to have patient endurance if you don't have an attention span of more than 20 seconds. And so we as a church, as the church, need to create a subculture that is, is countercultural in simple things like having longer attention spans and being able to stay in there long haul in relationships and disciplines and, and what God's called us to, whatever that may be on our plates for the long haul. See, that sort of patient endurance discipline focus is what I, I see is massively lacking and so it's distraction and the other thing I would add to it is what Carl Truman's title of his book that I highly recommend the rise and triumph of the modern self and it's the theme of of the, the youth camps this this summer it's that I I create reality I create truth what I'm feeling at the moment is reality it is true and if you dare tell me otherwise, you're not respecting me. You're actually, vi you're actually violating me in some, some, some way. So, so that, that's the big problem. Is there an authority over us, our creator, who tells us what's true? Or do I just get to make it up? And, and people believe that. They believe that they get to define reality as an individual. Again, for all of human history... There was a sense that, no, we submit to what reality is. And wisdom is understanding what reality is and then conforming your life to it. There's this idea now, no, I conform reality to my desire, my, my temptations. Well, I wouldn't even call them temptations. My desires, my inclinations, my determination, my feelings. What I think will get me the most likes on social media, whatever it is. I'll, I'll, I'll determine what's true based on that. And, and when you add all that together, we've got a crisis. We've got a moral crisis, we, we, and, and it's invaded the church in, in so many ways as well. Let's not think we're impervious to it. Excellent. Does that help, Jeff? Okay. What did you expect? Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. So I, I totally get what you're saying. Those things you said are the symptoms. Those are the things we see. The things I talked about, I think, are what le are leading to those symptoms. I'm talking about the disease. The disease shows up in lots of different ways. And I'm very concerned that we, we go after the fundamental presuppositions that lead to thinking I determine reality, that then lead to sexuality issues and, and all the moral things we see. And, and reducing someone to merely their race is the most important thing about them. All these things that don't start with the right God-given understanding of human beings, what we started talking about, and the meaning of life, and the purpose of life, and who gets to decide whether my life is meaningful or not. Is it me, or is it my creator? See, those are the fundamental things. The symptoms show up in lots of different ways. But the selfism, the, the lack of staying at it and submitting to God in his ways, is, is what is at the root of all of these symptoms that you're talking about, Jeff. Yes, the, the, the lady in front, remind me of your name. Gail, hi Gail. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Yes. 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 Yeah, see, I see, I see what I was just talking about at the root of that too. So if you read the New Testament, it is a non-negotiable that a believer is meaningfully involved in a local church. But for so many Christians, the local church is an event I attend and then critique and maybe write a Yelp review on when I'm done. Rather than what I started off talking about my church in being here is this necessary, interdependent, under the lordship of Christ, family of God that cares for widows and orphans and is shepherding the flock under their care and making disciples who make disciples and doing missions and submitting to authority and carrying out church discipline and rightly preaching the word of God and doing all these things in a gathered incarnational way. You read the New Testament, it's, non, it's a non-negotiable necessity for a disciple. The Bible doesn't even have a category for someone who kind of affiliates with the local church. In the New Testament, you're either a believer, meaningfully involved in your local church, or you've been kicked out of your local church for, for unrepentant sin, or you're a pagan, and we need to preach the gospel to you. Those are really the three, this sort of, yeah, I kind of am loosely affiliated with the church. The New Testament writers would just give a big, what, to them, because it, it's not even a category. But somehow it's become a category because of American consumerism. You know, now I say, you know, I go to church, I like, I like this worship music, and I go to this church for that, and that church for that, and it's so designer, consumeristic, and, and I'm, I'm running the show. It's this selfism toward the church. And so for someone in that situation, which I have been saying when I finally am able to get a hold of these members of my church on the phone, I have 54 fam, uh, households that, that are on my elder list. And so I keep up with these. So, and I call and finally get them on the phone. Hey, how you doing? Is everything okay? We haven't seen you in a while. Oh, yeah, you know, we've been really getting into cycling lately. And good, I like cycling. Can we talk about the Bible? And, and so, um, and, and I really do. Eventually, I want to say, wait. Tell me, do you believe the Bible is the authoritative, inspired word of God? Yes, I do. Do you know what it teaches about the church? Well, I, th I think I do. I'm not sure. 
because you're not obeying it. I, I actually think we should start carrying out church discipline eventually for people who are, are not meaningfully involved. Why not? Don't, do not forsake the assembling together of saints as some are in the habit of doing. That's a command. If you disobey it, why not church discipline? Because we don't do church discipline almost at all, right? Because we don't take membership seriously. And we don't make it clear to people that if you blow off the church, we'll carry out church discipline. Hopefully one-on-one will do it, but who knows? And so, and then the second thing I would say is, do you love Jesus? And if they say yes, I'll say, do you know who his bride is? It's the church. Do you think you can love Jesus and not his bride? Well, no, I, I love the bride. I love the people of God. They'll know you were my disciples by your love one for another. That's how they'll know. You can't love Jesus and not love his bride. And you can't love his bride if you're not meaningfully interrelated with his bride and connected to it and feeling the responsibility of helping the bride get better because she started off really ugly and he's making her better and we're part of the ugliness and part of the getting better. So how's that going? You know, I had one guy say to me, who should know better? I said, when are you going to come back? He said, oh, you extroverts need church. Ah! And again, that's this personality thing. We'll say, that's not really me. It's the Bible, though, right? So, Jeff, you're seeing sort of what I, what I, I, I get pretty exercised about these things because it's biblical authority at the end of it. But it's also the state of your soul. You can't grow in isolation from the people of God. You can't. And you can't love Jesus if you don't love his bride. Man, and young, it shows your authenticity these days. And how real you are to bash the church of which you're a part. That's what's cool now. And we need constructive criticism. But if you criticize my wife in my presence, you better do it respectfully. And the bride of Christ is Jesus' bride. The church is his bride. So we need to love and respect her. And if you're part of it, own your role in our problems and your role in helping us solve some of those problems. That help. Absolutely. 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 But I wouldn't want to leave it ambiguous either. I wouldn't want to leave the impression that this, this is... It, one of my hardest things is say it to my students, over 50 options for your gender choices on Facebook. We've lost our minds We've it's incoherent, it's chaotic, it's, it's, that's not kind. Uh, somebody's got to say the emperor has no clothes. It, and again, there's this, this need to, that's an interesting illustration to use for, but um, yeah, there's this, this need to speak really clearly. And I, I'm finding young people are going, oh, somebody besides a rapper has conviction. That's really interesting. Do talk more, right? Because for a long time, we're, we're just sort of walking on eggshells with people. And, and it's such a reflection of our culture. If you lived in the Middle East, you can't even buy spices without arguing. Right? And in our culture, it's just like, uh, and Southern California, where I live, is the worst. Everything's, I moved here, and I, I had a hard time talking to people because like every other sense, they'd say, cool, cool cool. And I, I just started thinking, I'm just going to throw it. Yeah, I killed my mother-in-law yesterday. Cool. And see if it just kept going, you know. 
And if they even were even listening, it's, it, it, did they ever say, uncool? No, you're not allowed to. And so, so I think there's a time to sort of um, just meet them where they're at. But I also think there's a time to speak prophetically. I think for a long time we've been trying to build bridges and, and um, relate so much that, that we're not saying, this is what the Bible clearly says, and it's awesome, and it's the only way to live, right? People are selling everything in the world with passion and conviction and saying, if you don't grab a hold of this, you're, you're, you're going to lose everything. And we have the words of eternal life. And, and I, I don't want us to think we need to, to um, tone that down. And right with our personalities, though, that God's given us and the relationships he's given us, and yes, have grace for people, but man, I, I feel like we got to pull the fire alarm in some ways too because people's lives are getting destroyed. Young people's lives especially are sucked into this and it's devastating. It's, people are mutilating themselves bodily these days because they know it'll get them likes on social media. I, I really think that's a lot of what's going on. It's tragic what's happening. And, and again, we need to be incredibly compassionate for individuals in the midst of opposing a revolution that's going on morally and ideologically in our minds. Well, we did one slide. That's all right. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us your word, and it's clear, and it's powerful, and it's authoritative, and it's transformative, and it's life-giving because it leads us to you the author of life. It leads us to Jesus, the Savior of our lives. It leads us to the kind of transformation we desperately need to make us more like Jesus and make us more effective and fruitful in our growth and in our, in our ministries. Lord, help us to attend to the means of grace you've given us. Help us to be men and women who are disciplined and walk with you faithfully, obeying you, because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. So Lord, help us to restore a good and healthy understanding of words like obedience and duty and religion and discipline. Lord, help us to see that these things are not in tension with grace. Uh, they're not con contrary or opposed to grace. They're means of grace. And we pray you'd help us in these things by the Holy Spirit's kind ministry to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.